Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 44, discussing the conversion of Pharaoh. Before we jump in, we wanted to remind you about a Facebook Live event that we are doing tomorrow, May 16th at 1 p.m. Central. This is going to be a talk with John and Lindsay Tollefson on parenting and home life during the pandemic. For more information about this live stream event, you can check out the link down there in the show notes, and we hope to see you there. We really want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the conversion of Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 41. This is another very familiar passage, and actually there's not a lot of technical details that need to be talked about in terms of going through it. Because the chapter is so long, I don't want to read the entire chapter. We'll go through it section by section. In terms of its outline and literary structure, there's no particular chiasm or other structure here. we just got a straightforward narrative. We could outline it. As you see it here, Pharaoh's dreams, and then A prime Pharaoh's dreams recounted again, and then A double prime Pharaoh's dreams come true. There's a sense in which things about Joseph are interspersed. Pharaoh's dreams, they can't be interpreted, and Joseph is brought up. And then Pharaoh's dreams are recounted to Joseph, and Joseph interprets, and Joseph is brought up farther to Pharaoh's throne, and then Pharaoh's dreams come true. And Joseph feeds the entire world. But that's about as much as we can do. There are no key words that occur in odd places that indicate that the author had intended some significant structure here. The narrative itself gives us the structure. So we'll start with Pharaoh's dreams, which we find in verses 1 to 7. And I'll read from Fox. And at the end of two years' time, or literally... At the end of two years in days, in other words, exactly two years, it was that Pharaoh dreamt, and behold, he was standing by the Nile stream, and behold, out of the Nile seven cows were coming up, fair to look at and fat of flesh, and they grazed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows were coming up after them out of the Nile, ill to look at, and lean of flesh. And they stood beside the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the cows ill to look at, and lean of flesh, ate up the seven cows fair to look at, the fat ones. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and dreamt a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain were growing up on a single stalk, fat and good. And behold, seven ears, lean and scorched by wind from the sun rising, literally what that says, were springing up after them. And the lean ears swallowed up the seven ears fat and full. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. The first thing to notice is this is exactly two years after Pharaoh's birthday, so therefore this happens on Pharaoh's birthday. The cupbearer was elevated back to his position on Pharaoh's birthday, and now Joseph is going to be elevated to Pharaoh's right hand 
on Pharaoh's birthday. And I added down here, Pharaoh receives a new birth. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch in terms of the theology of the passage. But certainly, everything changes here. It changed for the cupbearer two years ago. Now it changes for Joseph. And possibly, and certainly it's going to change for Pharaoh as well in terms of his acceptance of the God of the universe. Then we have, and I also didn't have it in here in your notes particularly, but just as the cupbearer was elevated on the third day, so now we come to the third year. And things always change in the third day, third year, third hour, third month, third week in the Bible. That's the time that things change so that history can be repaired as it moves to the seventh day. God is never going to let the world go all the way down to the seventh day without redeeming it. He did that before the flood. He says, now after the flood, he says, man is evil from his youth, but I will interpose and change things. And God interposes and changes things on the third day, so to speak, so that wickedness does not get to mature all the way to the seventh. The history is turned around. And, of course, we know that Jesus' resurrection is the main thing that that's pointing to. But it's all over the Old Testament narratives as well. Things are always changing on the third something. But we have two nightmares here. God is the God of nightmares. He sends nightmares to shake people up, and Pharaoh's definitely shaken up. The first nightmare shows Pharaoh that the Nile is going to fail. The word Nile occurs four times here. I don't know if that's really significant in this passage, the way it's written. But the Nile is going to fail. It's going to give out nice cows, but then bad cows. The nice cows graze in the grass, the bad cows graze on the fat cows. And Pharaoh wakes up. We can psychologize that and say if you had a dream like this and saw cows eating up cows, you might wake up too. But we're told that he woke up and then dreamed again to show that there are really two quite separate dreams here. The second nightmare shows him that the sun is going to fail. That's a bit obscured to us because it says the ears were scorched by the east wind. But the wind that comes from the east is coming from where the sun comes up. And so there's no way we can avoid, I think, seeing that the two principal gods of Egypt are involved here. The Nile and the sun, who are not only the primary gods, the male and female gods who together make Egypt fertile, that cause everything to grow in Egypt, the mixture of the mud of the Nile and the rays of the sun are what are responsible for everything that grows all the food. But there are also the boundaries of Egypt. Any Egyptian picture of the world has the river at the bottom and the sky above with the sun in it. The boundaries of Egypt are collapsing. The entire structure of the nation Symbolically, that structure in terms of its boundaries and the reality of that structure in terms of nature. These are things that Pharaoh would be concerned with because Pharaoh is the principal priest of the Egyptian religion. All of these priest kings of the ancient world were. You remember from the movie The Ten Commandments how the Pharaoh comes out to bless the river and pour water into it at one point. Well, Pharaoh had to do all these rituals. He was the chief incarnation of the sun god, Ray, and he was supposed to maintain things. Well, this tells him these gods are failing, 
and Egypt is failing, natural law is failing. Because this is what happens every year is that the Nile floods because of the rains in Central Africa and the Nile floods out. It happens every year. The sun and the wind do the same things every year. It never changes. And what he's being told here is what we call natural law. The regularities in the universe are going to fail. And so the world is falling apart. It's not predictable. And Pharaoh's superintendence of that world is going to fail. It's not as if he's in charge of it, but he has his role to play ritually. He has to cooperate with nature. He has to do certain things on certain dates in the calendar and the year that correspond with what the Nile is doing and what the sun is doing and what the star Sirius is doing and all the rest. And his superintendence, his involvement in this world is failing. He's not going to be able to do anything about it, or so it seems. It looks as if he's out of control, the world is out of control, the gods are failing, Egypt is threatened, the boundaries of Egypt are threatened. So this is quite a nightmare. It's not just some little dream. And then in verse 8, we come to the fact that there was no interpretation from the priests and wise guys. Verse 8 says, And in the morning it came to pass that his spirit was agitated. In other words, this dream did not disappear. As we said last week, these special dreams don't fly forgotten at the coming of the day, but they are remembered, and his spirit is agitated. He can't forget it. So, he sent and had all of Egypt's magicians, he's got here, priests, interpreters, soothsayers, and all of its wise men called. Two groups of people here. The magicians or priests are going to interpret the symbolism of the dream and tell Pharaoh what it means, what the seven means, what the cows mean. The wise men would advise him based on what the magicians say. If these seven cows represent seven days, then what do we do about it? The wise men would give advice. And, of course, I'm sure that there's a certain amount of overlap between these two groups, but basically they're like pastors and elders in the Egyptian religion. The ones who interpret the word or the scroll or messages from the gods, and then those who make decisions and implement and advise the court what to do. Pharaoh recounted his dream to them, but no one could interpret them to Pharaoh. I don't think this means they didn't have the foggiest idea of what these dreams were about. It's... Not necessarily that hard to figure out what this dream might mean, but you might not want to take the risk of saying, you know, Pharaoh, I think this means seven years of disaster are coming. I don't know that I'd want to be the one to say it, so there's probably, at the very least, a great deal of confusion. One commentator suggested that they told Pharaoh what it meant, but he didn't want to hear it. I doubt if that's true. It says nobody could interpret it. They couldn't give a convincing interpretation. So whatever glimmer that they may have had of what this might mean, they didn't want to go there. And so now Joseph is brought up. And this is the first ascension of Joseph in the passage. He ascends up out of the pit into Pharaoh's court. And then, of course, he ascends farther to Pharaoh's right hand. And so verses 9 to 14 give us that. And it's the chief cupbearer whose action brings it about. Verses 9 to 14, Seth, 
Then the chief cupbearer spoke up to Pharaoh, saying, I must call my faults to mind today. Pharaoh was once infuriated with his servants and placed me in custody in the house of the chief of the guard, myself and the chief baker. And we dreamt a dream in a single night, he and I. We dreamt each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was a Hebrew lad there with us, a servant of the chief of the guard. And we recounted them to him, and he interpreted our dreams to us. For each man, according to his dream, he interpreted. And thus it was. As he interpreted to us, so it was. I was restored to my position, and he was hanged. And Pharaoh sent and had Yosef called, and they hurriedly brought him out of the pit, and he shaved and changed his clothes and came before Pharaoh. So the chief cupbearer, who of course, as we've said, is one of Pharaoh's main advisors, one of the wise men, I would guess the baker having the secret of leaven is close to being the priest, and the chief cupbearer having charge of wine is close to being a king because bread and wine are priest and king associated in the Bible. He's there, he's one of this company, and he says, I must call my faults to mind today. Which faults? Well, probably the fact that he had once spent time in prison and Pharaoh had been mad at him. I'd rather not remind you of this, Pharaoh, but there is somebody who might be able to help you, and I have to remind you that I was once at fault and you threw me in prison. Or maybe the fault is the fact that he didn't say anything about Joseph two years earlier when Joseph had asked him to. He does say faults in the plural. Whatever it is, he initiates his conversation that way. We find that he recounts what happened, that Joseph was in Potiphar's prison there, and then in verse 14, Joseph is brought up. Joseph was called, and they brought him out of the pit. We've seen it's not really a pit. It's a country club prison, so to speak, but it's called a pit to remind us of death and resurrection and, of course, the first pit that he was in. So he is ascending here, being brought up. And it says he shaved and changed his clothes. Shaving is... The Egyptians, uh, unique in the ancient world, were clean-shaven. Sometimes they even shaved their heads, like basketball players. So usually it's interpreted that that's all this means, and it could well be. I would think that if you were familiar with the rest of the Bible and look back at that, you might think a little bit about the Nazarite vow, that when your period of difficulty is over, you shave your hair off. Maybe there's some deep connection hint there that Joseph is changing from one life situation to another. Also, the war bride who is brought home is to shave her hair and cut off her nails and wait a month till her hair grows back. Wouldn't grow back a whole lot in a month, I guess, but before she can be married to the man who captured her and brought her back from the war. So this is at the very least a sign, in addition to being he's made to look like an Egyptian because he's going to Pharaoh, probably in larger terminology, we should also see it as a sign of a change of life. It's part of cutting off the old world, maybe even somewhat analogous to circumcision, a way of slicing off what had been there before as you move into something new. 
And in fact, that comes up later on in the chapter when Manasseh is born and Joseph says, God has caused me to forget all the things that happened to me before and given me a new life. Well, he also changes his garments. He's going to change them again before this chapter is over, but the business of putting nice garments back on, you see, is part of this ascension. His nice garments have been stripped off of him twice. Now this is the climax of that garment theme. His garments are given back to him. He gets better garments to come before Pharaoh, and of course he'll get even better ones before the story's over. So this is the first stage of Joseph's ascension here. He's brought up before Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh recounts his dreams. Verses 15 to 16, And Pharaoh said to Yosef, I have dreamt a dream. There is no interpreter for it, but I have heard it said of you that you but need to hear a dream in order to interpret it. I have heard about you that you only need to hear a dream in order to interpret it. Yosef answered Pharaoh, saying, Nope, not me. God will answer what is for Pharaoh's welfare. So Joseph immediately corrects the notion that he has the power to interpret dreams. He says, I don't. He said, if I can interpret this, it's because God will be speaking to me and God will tell me. So the evangelism starts here again. Joseph does not say, yes, because of my good Hebrew education, I can figure this dream out for you. He doesn't say, yeah, us Hebrews, we're experts in this stuff. We're a whole nation of priests. I could show you that I'm circumcised and you'd be amazed, Pharaoh, but that would be a sign that we've got this background of information and knowledge. No, he doesn't say any of that. He directly speaks about God, and that's important because we've just seen the dreams are about the failure of the gods of Egypt and the opposition between the true God, Elohim, and these lesser spirits or lesser powers the gods of Egypt is part of what's going on here. It's not as if the sun and the Nile are not powers at all. They are. If you don't have some nice mud and some nice sunlight, you're not going to get any crops. These are gods in the sense of being lesser powers, but they're not the supreme god. And it's time for Pharaoh to stop fiddling around with these second-rate, inferior powers of nature and to come in contact with the God who created nature and superintends it in the first place. So, there's not a warfare against the gods of Egypt here so much as it is that they're being superseded. It was okay for a while, when you didn't know any better Pharaoh. But now, I'm going to show you something better. These are going to give out, but there is a higher God. We're moving into a new covenant here, no longer under stewards no longer under nature, directly under God. So Joseph starts off by saying it that way, and the word God occurs seven times in this chapter I've got down here, and the climax of it is, of course, Pharaoh's statement that the God of Joseph is the true God in so many words. Well, Pharaoh tells the dream to Joseph, and he tells it from his perspective. Before we had the narrator's perspective, Pharaoh dreamt, and he saw this, and he saw that. Now Pharaoh tells it, and it's interesting how much more emotional and dramatic Pharaoh's recounting is. You get a picture of how Pharaoh felt about it, how it felt to go through these nightmares in verses 17 to 24. 
Pharaoh spoke to Yosef, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, out of the Nile were coming up seven cows, fat of flesh and fair of form. They grazed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows were coming up after them, wretched and exceedingly ill of form and lank of flesh. In all the land of Egypt, I have never seen their like for ill condition. So you see how Pharaoh views it. It's not just symbolic here, but emotional. These were really bad cows. We've never seen anything like it in Egypt. This is going to be something new. We haven't had this kind of thing before. And then the seven lank and ill-looking cows ate up the first seven cows, the fast ones. They entered their body. But you would not know that they had entered their body, for they were as ill-looking as at the beginning. Well, this is something new. When the skinny cows ate up the fat cows, the skinny cows were still skinny. They consumed everything. What does that mean? Then I woke up, and I saw in my dream, behold, seven ears were coming up on a single stalk, full and good. And behold, seven ears hardened, lean, and scorched by the wind from the sun rising were springing up after them. So he gives us three adjectives here before the ears of grain were lean and scorched. Here they're hardened and lean and scorched. And then the lean ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Now, I have spoken with the magicians, with the priests, but there is no one who can tell me the answer. Well, Pharaoh gives us a bit more information, certainly shows us a bit more of how he perceived it. And we learn that the seven skinny cows, the lank ones, thin ones, when they eat up the fat ones, they don't get any fatter. It's as if nothing had happened. So that's a little additional frightening information. Well, now Joseph performs as a magician and as a wise man. He stands as priest to interpret the dream. Then he comes as a wise man to tell Pharaoh what to do about it. So in verses 25 to 32, we have Joseph acting as a priest. And I point out to you that this does have something of a structure here. In verses 25, 28, and 32, Joseph says this is what God is going to do. And uh, he uses the name Elohim significantly. And then interspersed are the discussion of the seven years. So we have God, seven years, God, seven years, God. That's to emphasize. You can hear the emphasis as we read it. The number seven occurs ten times in this statement of Joseph's, which again probably is significant. There don't seem to be significant repetitions of words in this chapter anywhere else, but here would seem to be. This is almost the center of the chapter. So let's hear it. Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dream is one. What Elohim is about to do, he has told Pharaoh. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. Not 14 years, but seven. And the seven lank and ill-looking cows that were coming up after them are seven years. And the seven ears, hollow and scorched by the east wind, will be seven years of famine. This is the word that I spoke to Pharaoh, what God is about to do. He has let Pharaoh see. Behold, now he tells us what it means. Seven years are coming of great abundance in all the land of Egypt. 
but seven years of famine will arise after them, when all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will destroy the land, and you will not know of the abundance in the land because of the famine afterwards, for it will be exceedingly heavy. Now, as for the twofold repetition of the dream to Pharaoh, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God is hastening to do it. Now, what is the other possibility? What is Joseph correcting a misinterpretation of the dream here? If Pharaoh had not woken up between the two dreams, what would you might think? You might think seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And then seven more years of plenty and seven more years of famine. Because that's the way it looks. But the fact is Pharaoh woke up between the dreams and then he dreamed a second dream. And Joseph is saying this means that it's not seven, 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 but they're one dream. The two dreams are both dealing with the same event. They're not consecutive. So that's what he is correcting here. Verse 25 What God is about to do, he has told Pharaoh. It's not the Nile that's in control. It's not the sun that's in control. It's Elohim that's in control. Elohim is the one speaking to Pharaoh. Verses 26 to 27, the seven are explained as years, and not much is said about them in terms of what's going to happen in those years, and then more is said in the second half. Verse 28, he returns to Elohim. It's Elohim and not the Nile or the sun or any other god. Ta or Thoth or Nath or Peth or anybody else who is showing things to Pharaoh. He has told a Pharaoh, he has let Pharaoh see what he is about to do. Then in verses 28 to 31, as we read, he explains the symbolism. There are going to be seven years of great abundance, but then seven years of famine. And verse 30, seven years of famine will arise after them when all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will destroy the land. You will not know of the abundance in the land because of the famine afterward. The thin cows eat up the fat cows. The abundance will be consumed by the famine. And when it's all done, you'll barely make it through. The seven lean cows, the only reason they survive is that they eat the seven fat cows. So that's where the dream gives advice. If the seven thin cows are going to have to eat up the fat cows, and the seven scorched ears of grain are supposed to eat the seven plump ears of grain, what would that mean practically? It would mean that you've got to store up the food from the seven years of abundance so that they can be eaten during the seven years of dearth. So the dream itself contains the advice. The fact that The seven years of dearth eat up the seven years of abundance means that you need to save up during the years of prosperity so that you can eat the leftovers, eat up what you've saved during the years of famine. So that's what it means. That's the interpretation. Then in verses 33 to 36, Joseph functions as the wise man. See, Pharaoh needed better magicians and better wise men. And now he's got Joseph. He wanted better bread and better wine. He's got Joseph. He needed better bread and better priests and better wise men. Now Joseph is those things. And Pharaoh needs better gods. And he's going to find a better god here. The old gods are falling out. Everything is better here. The old ones were okay. 
The old wise men and magicians had been able to handle things up until now. But now they can't. The sun and the Nile had taken care of Egypt okay up until now, but now they can't. The bread and wine had tasted okay up until now, but now they're stale and sour. You've got to have all these new things because history moves along. History isn't static. I don't know if a Greek philosopher could write this story. Because in Greek philosophical thinking and pagan thought, the world doesn't change. It may run through cycles, but it doesn't change. It doesn't make progress. Progress is a distinctively Christian idea. In pagan thought, you always return to the way things used to be. Odysseus just wants to go home. You cannot change. You can't leave home and go somewhere else like Abraham did and actually find a new place, not if you're a pagan. You've got to go back home. Because the world can't change. Because it's threatening. It's very threatening for the world to change. You don't know what it's going to change into. We're used to the idea of progress and change, you see. In our lifetime, television has taken over, and now the computers have taken over, and now the Internet has taken over. These are three things that result in huge changes. Before television, there was radio. And these are tremendous changes. We're used to changes. The ancient world wasn't used to changes. Well, at any rate, this coming of this new covenant-type situation here, all these new things and better things are being given to Pharaoh because God has elected Pharaoh. And now Joseph is going to act as the wise man in verses 33 to 36. He says, the text, Seth, And now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers for the land, dividing the land of Egypt into five parts during the seven years of abundance. Let them collect all kinds of food from these good years that are coming. And let them pile up grain under Pharaoh's hand as food provisions in the cities and keep it under guard. So the provisions will be an appointed reserve for the land for the seven years of famine that will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not be cut off by the famine. So now this is the advice. We've seen the advice comes a little bit out of the dream itself. The seven later years need to be eating on stuff produced in the first seven years. Joseph advises that he find a wise man. I don't know if Joseph had himself in mind. Maybe he did. He certainly has the experience for it. Joseph had managed the household economy for his father when he was a teenager. He had managed Potiphar's household, and Potiphar was the captain of the guard, a very powerful and important man. He had managed the prison and supervised feeding people there. So he has all kinds of good background for this kind of thing in the providence of God. And then he says in verse 34, and this is a little bit obscure, Let him appoint overseers for the land so that this new secretary of agriculture, this wise man who's going to be over things, will have assistance. And then he says, dividing the land into five parts. Now, the New American Standard gives a different translation. Let him exact a fifth part of the produce of the land of Egypt. Now, the question is, is he saying collect a fifth of the crops during these seven years? Or is he saying, divide the land into five parts during these seven years? Well, collecting a fifth of the stuff is less likely, not only because of the Hebrew, but also because verse 35 says, let them collect all the food. 
This says all kinds of food, but in Hebrew it just says all the food. Let them collect all the food during those good years, not just a fifth. And if he was just saying collect a fifth of it, you'd expect that to be repeated. What would it mean to divide the land into five parts? I don't know that it means to divide the land into five parts. I think it means organize it into fives, which is a reference to military organization. We've discussed this before. Five is number of power. And these overseers are going to organize the land in a military fashion. I think that makes the most sense. The nation is put under martial law for these years. Free trade is going to be subordinated to what the nation as a whole has to say. This is an emergency situation. When you have an emergency situation, you have commanders who organize the people and say what's going to be. And that's what you have. And I think that that interpretation of the various ways of reading it makes by far the most sense. Because it's what seems to happen. The nation is organized as if it were an army camp. And everybody is set up to do these things. And all the extra food is going to be gathered up. It's not going to be sold. They're not going to be shipping it out to other parts of the world like they normally would. The trade is going to be suppressed during these seven years because they're going to be needing to collect it during these seven years. And it's going to be piled up in cities and storage cities with a view to the seven years of famine. I just think we have to admit that when you have extraordinary emergency situations, you have to have this. This tornado that went through Alabama last night and killed ten people and tore all that area up. Well, you're going to have to have some type of martial law situation there. People will come in and try to sell bottled water for $50 a bottle and stuff like that. You can't have that. So for a temporary situation, the Army will come in and provide for people and help them out and organize them, like when a hurricane happens here or something, to some extent. And if you had to have a curfew, you'd have a curfew. Whatever you need, it's an emergency. Uh Uh-huh. The food that was collected, it belonged to the Pharaoh. How did he get it? Just take it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think they did. They did own, to some extent at least, it indicates that they owned their own farms. But this was simply taxed up. All the extra stuff was taxed and laid aside. But it became his. Yeah, what you tax becomes the property of the state, and the Pharaoh is the state. Yeah, it doesn't square with our ideas of a free market. That's why I'm saying you have to understand this as a radical emergency. And you would, even today, if you had this kind of an emergency, you might well have to do this kind of thing. We don't experience these kinds of emergencies. And that's nice. But it might happen. So at any rate, that's what's happening here. And we'll have to get to that question about Joseph making everybody sell their property to the state and its meaning later on. We'll postpone that question until it comes up in the text. Verses 37 to 46, we have Joseph's second ascension to the throne. Now he not only comes up out of the pit, he goes to the throne. We actually have a whole series of statements by Pharaoh here, which are somewhat repetitious, but each one advances beyond what was there before. 
Let's hear that section, 37 to 46. Well, the words seemed good in Pharaoh's eyes and in the eyes of all his servants. Nobody's upset about this. That's kind of important. Pharaoh doesn't say, who's Elohim? Are you attacking our Egyptian gods, you Hebrew boy? That's not his response. Nor, apparently, are the magicians and the wise men envious or angry. Now, there's a very similar story, a story almost identical to this later on in the Bible, where that's not the case at all. All the Chaldeans hated Daniel for doing this kind of thing. Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar likes him. And all the other wise men and servants of Nebuchadnezzar, they try to put Daniel to death. They try to put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to death. And later on, when the Persians take over and Cyrus elevates Daniel, they try to put him to death. And they get him thrown into a den of lions. That's not what happens here. Quite the reverse. The contrast between those two situations, I think, is important. It indicates that all these people have somehow or other been changed in their hearts to accept Joseph and his God and these words. Words aren't just little ciphers in the Bible. This is the Word of God. The Word of God seemed good in Pharaoh's eyes and the eyes of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, and here is a key verse, Can we find another man like this, a man in whom is the spirit of a God? He's got a man in whom is a divine spirit, says the NIV. Yes, the NASB says, in whom is a divine spirit. Well, it's not what it says. It says, in whom is the spirit of Elohim. The same phrase used in Genesis chapter 1. And I don't think that's without significance. Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of the seven days of creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. This is the second time this phrase has occurred, at the beginning of seven years. And just as the Spirit of God hovered over the water and worked with the world for seven days to bring it to a Sabbath, so Joseph is going to be over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is saying, gee, the new seven days only is seven years. The Spirit of God with Joseph hovering over and superintending this new week of history that has come in to replace the old time. And in terms of Pharaoh's behavior here and everywhere else, the notion that he's not really converted is awfully strange. The Bible is not a novel. When these people respond this way, we're supposed to understand that they're converted. When he asks Jacob to bless him and Pharaoh goes down on his knees and asks for Jacob to bless him, that's not just some interesting curiosity. That is an acceptance of the God of the Hebrews as his God. So again, we just have to see this as conversion. And we'll find throughout all this, the Egyptians are always real happy with Joseph. They are receiving the blessing of Abraham. That's the whole theology here, is that the blessing of God, God with us, Emmanuel, is going to come to all the nations, and here it is. So I despise these translations. They just trivialize the text in terms of prejudices that are completely alien to the Scriptures. Oh, well, we don't know for sure if this Pharaoh just doesn't seem likely. So soften it up. Nope. 
This man has the spirit of Elohim. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, since a God has made you know this, no, since Elohim. These are the last two occurrences of the word Elohim. Five times Joseph has said, Elohim, 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 Elohim. He's the true God. Pharaoh now in his response twice refers to Elohim. Since Elohim has made you know this, there is none as wise and discerning as you. You shall be the one over my house. Then literally it says, by your mouth shall all my people kiss. Only by the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said further to Yosef, behold, I place you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's hand. And he had him clothed in linen garments and put the gold collar on his neck. And he had him mount the chariot of his second in rank. And they called out before him, Avrech. Kapla, Avrek. Thus he placed him over the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without you no man shall raise hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Saphonath-Paneah. He's got it, the God speaks and he lives. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as a wife. And Joseph's influence went out over the land of Egypt. Well, literally, Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and passed through all the land of Egypt. Well, what does this mean in verse 40? To your order shall all my people submit. That's a good paraphrase. It says, by your mouth shall all my people kiss. What that means is you'll set up who reports to whom. Kissing is saluting. The word salute means kiss. The boy salutes his girl. It means he kisses her. So Joseph will be setting up who reports to whom. Essentially is what that means. You'll be the one who sets up these overseers. You'll be in charge of the hierarchy of responsibility here. Who honors whom will be your business. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. So the whole hierarchy of who reports to whom, who's in charge of whom, is set up by Joseph, and there's only one person higher than Joseph, and that's the Pharaoh. In verses 41 and 42, he gives him the signet ring. That's all the authority of Pharaoh. You use that, it's as if Pharaoh did it. Now, he has Pharaoh's seal in his hand, so when he does something, it has all of Pharaoh's authority. And then he gives them linen garments, which are the best. These are the best kind of garments. They are nice, cool linen garments for that hot Egyptian weather. And linen doesn't cause you to sweat. Linen is priestly. It certainly indicates some type of authority. And then the gold necklace. It's got gold chain here, but this is one of those gold collars or necklaces that indicates that he has royal authority. So, priestly and royal authority are involved here. I would say, again, we're looking at priest and wise man stuff, bread and wine, linen and gold, linen being priestly and gold being kingly, at least in large associations. Joseph is being put in those positions. Then, he's in the chariot, the number two chariot, and they call out before him, Avrek. Well, he's got that down as attention. Tenhut? Probably not. The traditional translation is bow the knee. That's based on Hebrew. 
But, of course, the commentators say, well, this is an Egyptian word, so you can't translate it with Hebrew. But then others say, well, yeah, it's an Egyptian word, but the Egyptian word means pretty much the same thing. It means do homage. So all these are the same general idea, even though we're not absolutely certain what the particular Egyptian word means. And who knows, maybe we're supposed to understand it in Hebrew terms. Of course, these languages were all in constant interaction with each other back in them days anyway. And we can do a little bit more. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without you no man shall raise hand or foot. You cannot do anything or go anywhere, hand or foot, in all the land of Egypt. But there's also this possibility of what this idiom might mean, since placing the sole of your foot somewhere is a way of taking control of property. Remember in Joshua chapter 1, it says, every place the sole of your foot touches will be your land. So since Joseph is going to be put over the land, and he's going to be basically put in charge of all the property of the land, to talk about the foot, placing the foot in a given place, may carry that implication as well. Not just a general statement, you can't raise hand, do anything, raise foot, go anywhere, but also all the property of the land and the management of that property is under your care. I've got down here Psalm 60, verse 8, Psalm 108, verse 9, where God says that He takes possession of Moab, or Edom, by saying, Over Edom I toss my sandal. You hear this in the psalm, Psalm 60, verse 8. Moab is my washbowl, over Edom I shall throw my shoe. In other words, I'll take possession of it. That's what that means. Just as in the book of Ruth, if you take possession of responsibility, somebody hands you their shoe. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.